Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in, everyone that's sharing the show with your friends. Once again, it really helps us if you leave a comment or you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Also wanted to let people know that we are doing playlists for every show. Sometimes they've been going up a little bit late, but they always do show up. And you can find them on the Spotify app on your phone. If you go to the details of the episode, you'll see a playlist corresponding to each episode. I curate the music uh, based on the conversation, and in certain cases, I get input from the artist that's featured on that episode. So go and check those out. Again, it's on Spotify and the app on your phone. I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media and the whole team that helps me put this show together. They also have a lot of other great shows and other great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. I'm really excited for the show today. I got my good friend Carl Denson joining us. He has done so much in his career and is now in the Rolling Stones, which is kind of incredible to even say. Uh, he's been touring with the Rolling Stones for the past five or six years. But he's done so much in his career from touring and performing with Lenny Kravitz in the early days to being a founding member of the Grey Boy All-Stars, one of my favorite bands. And then he founded Carl Denson's Tiny Universe in the early 2000s and has been touring with that band for about 20 years. He's made countless albums. He's done so much session work. Um, so it was really great to catch up with him, talk about his musical upbringing. We get into politics quite a bit in the very beginning. Carl and I have uh, spent a lot of time on the road together, and we've always talked politics and talked culture. Historically, he was always a Republican, so it was interesting to catch up now in this post-Trump era and uh, really get his take on everything. So I'm excited to get into all that. We're going to take a quick break first and hear from our sponsors. All right, let's get into it. He's an incredible saxophonist, a flute player, an arranger, a composer, a songwriter, a great band leader, and a Tai Chi master. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Mr. Carl Denson. Everybody that I've spoken to kind of like has some sort of new hobby or skill or something that they've taken on during uh, quarantine. I'm curious what you've gotten into. Obviously, like I know you're a big Tai Chi guy. Right. You make music at home. Any other new kind of things that you've taken on? I have been, uh, well, I just started, uh, I just got into Indian cooking. Ah. I went and bought like, you know, $150 worth of spices and a, nice. and a mortar and pestle and um, and I've been doing it, you know, I, I, I got Urchna sent me a bunch of recipes the other oh, day. Yeah. Nice. She's a good resource. I'm sure. Yeah. And, uh, and then, and then my guitar playing's getting good, man. Oh, damn. Okay. Like, like, yeah. Like not like, not, you know, like performance level, but it's definitely, um, writing wise. And I mean, I'm almost there for as a rhythm guitar player, I can I can hold my own. Yeah, you can lay it down. So that's why you didn't call me back then, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. Just playing with you. No, you know what I'm, I'm <laughs> what I'm really what I'm really trying to do right now, man, is and and I and uh, um the the most interesting part of this whole like quarantine thing for me is um you know I, 
being able to do the same things, being able to keep a routine. Yes. And it's, it's, it's like, I'm learning about myself in a different way. And like, I'm learning about like through Tai Chi, I'm learning about, I just like, this is like literally this week or last week, I started this thing where I, I realized like it's everything's about mindfulness. Right. You know, and when I do Tai Chi, I, I, you know, I have a tendency to like, I'm doing Tai Chi, but you know how your mind wanders when you're doing, when you're meditating and, and I've, um, and I've kind of gotten out of letting my mind wander, you know, and, and it's, and it's brought me to a place where I realize I don't have to shake when I move, you know, like if I go right. into one foot, I don't have to shake. It's like, it's a part of the mindfulness thing. So I'm trying to transfer that now. Now my next challenge is I'm trying to transfer that mindfulness to writing lyrics. Ah, I hear you. To, po to poetry. Yeah. Because you know, as, as a non lyricist, when you sit down to write lyrics, it's so stressful and so strange that you tend to wander and you, you kind of get exhausted in the process. Right. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. And I'm, right. and I'm, I'm like, and I, you know, I've been practicing a lot and I'm like, it's just this whole mindfulness thing that I'm, that I'm coming to at 64 years old. That's kind of amazing. And if I didn't have this quarantine, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. Right. I think routine is huge. Um, as a touring musician, it's so hard to maintain a routine. And I mean, obviously for so many reasons, like, uh, your your health, your mindfulness. I think I right. feel like that's been something I've been been working on, whether I even know it. You know, it's just that I'm creating a routine. Also, for me, having a young child and like sleep training and have. It's funny how even though I have less time in my day, it's actually now that it's like allotted to a certain this time to that time, I get more done because I'm like, okay. Here I go, and I have to kind of turn things off to be productive. Right. So essentially, I've been more productive in just the fact that I am creating a routine. You know? Yes, and I'm trying to do the same thing. I've got I've got way too much free time, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. And I and I tend to, uh, you know, I tend to like I'm trying to turn the TV off. Never never turn the TV off on until I'm I'm done with everything. Right. And then I've got my shows recorded that I want to watch. I got a new couple of new shows and then some sports that yeah. I want to watch, yeah. you know, and then I, and then I record basketball for practicing. I, I was getting, I was getting to where I was getting up at 11 o'clock, you know, like it got yeah. close to 11 o'clock and I was like, okay, it's time to reform, you know? So yeah. I started setting my, my um, alarm for eight 30, you know, do the snooze a couple of times, you know, yeah. but it literally, because I'm not really a snoozer, I was by, you know, within three or four days, now I wake up at eight o'clock right? and right. I'm awake and I, and I, and I get up and I write, you know, like I, I, I started writing with a pen, Yeah. started writing cursive again, Yeah. which is very interesting. And, um, as opposed to like in your phone or a computer or as opposed yes, to, yeah, yes, right, yes. And, 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 uh, in conjunction with it right, pretty much, course, you know, yeah. there's certain things, certain things where I might want to dictate ideas, but, yeah. but, um, but there's a lot of times where I'm inspired. The typing sometimes gets in the way of the creative process. Yeah. Cause yeah. I'm not a typer. Yeah. 
So I just start, went back to writing and I get up and I write in the morning and then I, and I get my workout in early, get my Tai Chi in every day, which is huge. Yeah. And, um, and then, then I get to, you know, I'm having my coffee and getting to work by, you know, 1130. Right. Right. Which is, which is awesome. And in your writing, um, do you have a structure to it or is it kind of free form? It's so fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. Tell me about it. I generally kind of write in batches. Right. So at the beginning of this um, quarantine, I had a collection of dreams and I told you about it. Yeah. Like I've got, I've got like, like 25 songs in a, in a, in a list of like, basically like three records worth. Like there's a, there's kind of a, a hip hop pop element. There's like a kind of a real pop bunch of songs. And then there's a bunch of like kind of tiny universe slash Afrobeat kind of stuff. Yeah. For the first couple of months, I just sat and took my, my dreams from my phone and started learning them on guitar. Wow. So I sat down and I learned everything on guitar so I could actually play them and I knew the chords and there's some, you know, some interesting things that happened. Right. So right. I'm doing that. And then I start trying to, trying to transfer it over. Like I talked to you about, about producing a couple of things and I talked to a couple other um, DJs about producing things. Yeah. But then I realized that I gave a, I gave a friend a couple of things and, and I realized in the process that I needed to finish the lyrics because the lyrics were very minimal, you know, where I would just go to work at it at home. You know, if I was making tracks, I would just go, go to work at it and it'd be this big thing and it wouldn't have any lyrics, but I would kind of have an idea where the lyrics could go. But now I'm realizing working with other people and trying to finish complete songs, I need the lyrics to be more substantial, especially because I'm kind of going in a different direction. Right. You know, where I kind of got to develop a little bit of a flow spoken word kind of thing. So it's like this massive process of like me winnowing down what I'm working on to like one or two things, as opposed to just kind of letting my mind go. And I write a little bit of this and I write a little bit of that and I write a little bit of that. And now I'm, I'm at the point where I've got pages and pages of these pieces. And now it's time to be mindful and go, it's time to finish this song and then this song, and then this song, you know? Right, right. That's an interesting process. The beautiful thing is that you have so many ideas, you know what I mean? And yes. That, and whittling it down can be hard. It's, you know, I've, I've been in both situations where sometimes I'm sitting there just racking my brain to, to write something poignant that can go with a piece of music, and there's other times mm-hmm. where I've got too many, and it's like trying to... Uh, piece together this puzzle. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to, I'm really excited to hear, uh, hear these ideas, you know, and at the, and, and inside this whole conundrum is where I'm at in the world right now yeah. as a black man in America. Oh yeah. People can't relate to what black people live with every day. Right. And that's just freaking terror of white people not doing the right thing. And now we've come to this point where we, we, we finally got rid of Trump. We finally got rid of that freaking slow moving car wreck, yeah. you know, and now we're still in a point where we're, we're still trying to avoid 
I say this all the time to people because I want them to understand the history, but we're, 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 we're trying to avoid the redemption period of the United States history. I think you should elaborate a bit on that if you, if you don't mind. The Civil War happened. Right. After the Civil War came the Reconstruction period. Right. Which was uh, the government set aside money, they, they passed bills to send um, troops down to the South to protect the blacks, the, freely, the freed slaves, and to help them acclimate to American life right. as, free, as free people. That lasted um, eight years, basically. And when Rutherford B. Hayes was running for president, there was a very close election. And part of the closeness of the election had to do with the southern states and who they would, who they would vote for. So uh, Rutherford B. Hayes made the deal with the devil and um, got their votes. But in order to get their votes, he had to promise to re- re- repeal um, Reformation. So, so after Rutherford B. Hayes became president, they took all the troops out of the South and the freaking Klan filled that void. And that's when the, all the hangings and all the lynchings and all the crazy stuff started happening. While you had all these, you know, Americans, white Americans, kind of sitting in their homes, just turning a blind eye to all this brutality. Right. And now and now we're we, you know, we had Obama, you know, we, we, we actually came to a point where my God, um, when when my when my son was in like ninth grade or maybe 10th grade, you know, um, this girl, Emma, wanted to wanted him to go to the homecoming dance with her. Right. So, you know, I hear from I hear from Deborah, you know, oh, um, Lewis might go to the homecoming dance with Emma, blah, blah, blah. And you know, a couple of days later. Emma's, I come home, I'm dri- I drive into my driveway and there in the front yard is my, my wife and um, my ex and, um, and Emma's mom standing there talking and, and Emma's mom's like, yeah, um, I just wanted to meet you guys. You know, I, I, I heard the kids might be going to the homecoming dance and blah, blah, blah. And I just wanted to meet you guys. And I thought, now that would have never happened when I was a kid. Interracial dating was always a little touchy unless you had some super progressive parents and that was far and few between. So at that point, I kind of stopped talking to my kids about racism in a, of a certain ilk, you know? Like I, 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 I was more like, I'm gonna encourage my kids just like a white parent encourages their, their kids and not to worry about things and, and let's go forward, you know? Right. And, then, and then we had Obama. Yeah. And it's like, we're getting there. You know, we're almost Star Trek now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then... We go right back to the most nonsensical, crazy, overt right. racism you could ever have. And yet, half of America is turning a blind eye to it. You know? And so, so black people are just freaking terrified right now going, yeah. are, are we going into a civil war? Do I need to buy a gun? You know, like it's like yeah. that kind of mentality is happening. And so... I've been writing songs like I got this one song called 44. You know, it's a it's basically a song about about peace. But the fact that my best friend said I need a 44, but I can't sleep on the killing floor. Right, you know, like, right. like I don't want to have to think about killing people, yeah. you know, but there's a bunch of bloodthirsty assholes out there. 
who all that's that's all they do is think about killing people. And in your opinion, were those people, um, you know, kind of the racism? Do you think it's it was in existence this entire time, and then kind of awoken? Somewhat by Obama being in office, and then and then brought it empowered by Trump. All of this stuff started. Um, I mean, it's always been there. Yeah. Like if 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 any of you have watched uh, the movie Thirteen. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know that that famous uh, Lee Atwater, uh, Reagan's uh, campaign manager, that famous piece of of uh, of, of audio that I could not believe when I heard it, you know, it was like, he was just basically saying to Ronald Reagan, you know, back in the day, you should say nigger, you know, but you can't say nigger anymore. You got to do blah, 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 blah. But so now we've come to the point where you just got to make sure white people think they're going to do better than black people. Right. right. You know, and and he says that it's like real life. Yeah. You know, that's 1980. Right. That's a presidential campaign manager. Yeah. Okay. So, so, what I saw, I remember, and I'm a former Republican. We we had a lot of talks about that. Uh, yeah, on our travels over, over the years. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, but I do remember as a Republican, you know, and, and man, it was mainly as a Christian. But I became a Republican. I remember just kind of watching that white male backlash start right back in back in the early '80s, you know. And I was never a um, I was never dumb enough to to not want affirmative action. <laughs> yeah. I was never, I was never ignorant enough of history to, to not think that we as a country had to fix some of the inequities that are, that were baked into the cake. Right. But I saw it firsthand, you know, um, from the people around me, you know, living in Orange County, California, of course. and being aware of what was going on. I saw it and I saw it kind of keep growing and growing and growing until you know, when it when it came to the to the forefront with Trump, it wasn't a surprise at all. Yeah. You know, because we had gotten to that divisiveness, you know, in politics that that meant it was going to happen. But um, it has gone to a point now where it's really gotten dangerous. You know, like we're looking at um, QAnon as something that people think is real. I know. Well, there's people in Congress that are that that believe it you know the yeah. thing that got really scary for me is that i oh you know i've always lived in some a sort of bubble you know i've lived in brooklyn and hipsterville and la and you know and in well, like me like me in california basically right, you know right right yeah. and so what scared me is i always saw i mean to be totally honest racism as a whole like a thing of another generation you know what I mean? Of like uh-huh. people I don't even know, you know what I mean? And to right. see the uprising of like this white supremacy movement with young people is scary. Cause like I, in yeah. a certain way I was like, okay, we can fight them, but it's, it's eventually they'll be gone and like utopia will exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, you know, what's been scary. I mean, I think uh, some of it is what was ingrained from what was around them. Um, and growing up, you know, in their, you know, in the microcosm that they live in, but also the internet has grown and grown and also kind of shrunk at the same time because it kind of feeds people exactly, not only what they want to hear, but it kind of skews them. Dude, have you watched the social dilemma? Exactly. That's what got me into it. And then there's this podcast called the rabbit hole. 
which is about like uh, a few specific stories of people that were like total uh, liberals that got sucked into this uh, rabbit oh, hole. I got, essentially, I got, I got I got to look at that. I got to check that it's, out because I'm writing crazy. a song. I'm actually writing a song called The Rabbit Hole, Down the Rabbit Hole. Well, the thing is, I started realizing there was people that I knew and I'm friends with that I've known for years, smart people that believe deeply in some of these conspiracy theories and 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 Trump and like all these things. So I what's happening now is, you know, there has to be a conversation. I think what's what what happens in social media and I've talked about this with other people is like there's no there's there's no personal connection so people go on and say the most crazy things to each other and they and they battle each other. It's really what's in there. Right, right. But but I feel like if there, if there is a conversation between, cause I actually want to know, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to just blanket statement. I hate all people that support Trump. That's, I can't do that. I have to understand right. a little bit where they're coming from. I, and, uh, you know, some of it, I want to say, okay, you're crazy. I can't talk to you, but, it, but it, to a certain degree, if half the country supports him, you know, there's going to be, there, there either has to be a conversation or it's going to, or there's going to be some sort of civil war, you know, because, I know, man, which is and, crazy. And, and I wish I was as gracious as you are. I'm, I've come to the point where, where, you know, like I have friends that voted for Trump yeah. and I gave them two years. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give you two years because Hillary was a terrible candidate. And I understand, right. you know, how, how you could maybe, you know, go along with that nonsense, you right, know, right. but we're two years in and I started cutting people off, man. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'm not, if you can't see that that guy is dangerous to you, your country, and especially me and my children, Right. That, then I can't, I can't fuck with you. I mean, I essentially feel the same way. It's just so hard to, I, I, it's just, I can't, I just can't believe how many people support him. And I, yes. for me, it's more curiosity. It's like, I want right. to know what these people, cause there's people that I, I were important people in my life. You know what I mean? That I kind of wanted to cut off when I, when we started getting into political conversations and I discovered what they were get, getting into. But at the same right. time, I like feel this need to try to understand it, even though I feel like it's so wrong. And I agree with that. Yeah. You, you, you gotta have the conversation. Yeah. And I, I've, I've had plenty of them and there's people I don't talk to. There, yeah. And, and, and there's, there's times where I have to go, you know what, if you really believe that I'm not going to give you my time Yeah. because you know, it's not worth it for me to hang out with somebody like that. But I yeah. know that there's like, you know, there's brothers and sisters and fathers and cousins and uncles and all the all of those people who, you know, belong to that cult. Right. And so we can't just cut them off. Yeah. You know, but like, you know, like my my um my 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 ex-wife's brother, you know, way red yeah. out there in, in um Arizona. Yep. He freaking voted for Biden this time. Wow. I was so, I, I told her, I was like, tell him I'm so proud of him because he broke with, he broke with the whole clan. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's not like he r really doesn't buy into the whole, um, um, uh, Republican orthodoxy. He buys into it whole hog. 
right. you know, and he'll, and he'll give you all the arguments. And he, at one point, you know, my kids went and hung out with their, that side of the family and they came back and they were like, yeah, yeah. He, he was talking about how, you know, Trump is the least racist person and blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh. But, th- but then he actually had had enough at some point. Yeah. And I was so proud of him, but you know, these people that are, are, um, are playing this game with America, you know, <laughs> I got another tune. I got another tune. It's just a little hook. That's going to go on this one tune. It, it goes, it goes, you want to break the whole shit so I can't have none. You want to yeah. break the whole shit so I can't have none because yeah, yeah. they're really willing to break America so they don't have to share it. Right. Right. You know, so we don't have to think critically about who people of color are, who transgender people are, who gay people are, who um, um, uh, immigrants are, you know, like they, yeah. like if you think about it from a, a, a humanitarian standpoint you know and what america's founding doctrines are all about it's pretty easy to get to a point where you go you know this is a civil document it's not a freaking religious document right you know and then secondly read the damn thing don't just talk about how you love it yeah actually read it right right that like the same thing with the bible yeah don't just act like you love the bible read the bible yeah. You know, and maybe you'll get past the Ten Commandments and get to the Beatitudes, you know, right, right, right. and get to the, the blessed are the humble and blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers and all of the stuff that Jesus talked about. Right. Right. As opposed to just this vengeful God who told you, don't kill, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't do this. To, you know, like that's not what it's all about. And that's right. where they're stuck. And then check your heart, dude. Yeah. Yeah, your your heart's your heart is messed up if you can look at Trump and what and the things that he says and have no pause. Well, the interesting thing that you said is like uh, break it so I can't have none. I mean, that's Trump's mo is he's you know this this greed and this guy with all this money, but and he doesn't care about anybody else. But the people that support him are included in the fa- in the people he doesn't care about. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like he's not, he doesn't have them in mind. That's the crazy thing is they're ready to like tear down the Capitol for him. But what's he really doing for them? You know, I mean, I know in certain cases there's, um, he's talking to them. That's what, that's the main thing. Right. That's a good, he's actually talking to them. That's a good point. And that's, and that's kind of what they want. They want to be, they want to be a part of a club and just like he wants to just be cool. Right. Right. You know, like he's such a, he's such a dork his whole life yeah. that he always just wanted to be cool and being president of the United States made him cool. He yeah. got to be at the, got to be at the front of the front of the class. And, and he was willing to destroy America to stay cool. Yeah. And they, and they don't realize that they don't, because they don't care about it because they want to be cool, cooler than me. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's the bottom line. They want to be cooler than all of us libtards who yeah. actually care about each other and yeah. care about like doing the right thing for humanity. Right. right. So, so, you know, it, it's, it's just a bunch of hatred and, and that's why I can't really, you know, I can't really go there, Yeah. you know, anymore with those people like in a serious, like friendship way until we clear the air of the hatred. See, that's the thing is I'm just trying to, figure out and not that you know i don't know what role any of us play in this but how do we clear that air 
Like what, you know what I mean? At this point, I'm, you know, I feel like we're all a little lost. I mean, I think that the one thing I can say is when I turn on the news right now, of course it's CNN, but it's like there, there are a lot of, you know, at least the, the administration right now is focusing on the environment and the virus and like the things that are important right now. But I think that the fact that there's half the nation has all this hate. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. How do we build towards some sort of peaceful? You know what? I, I, I mean, I started this with my, with my last record with gnomes and badgers and the yeah. whole, um, you know, like I give a little talk every night about, you know, the whole idea of the gnomes and badgers was that they have different opinions and different viewpoints, right? but they are respectful and they are responsible to critical thinking. Yeah. So, I think that's the way to do it. And and I still do that. I'm like, you know, as much as I'm disappointed with all the people who belong to that cult, I'm never disrespectful to them. Right. You know, like I'm never going to just go, you're a freaking asshole, you know, get away from me kind of thing. It's more like, I'm going to talk to you like, like, like I talk to everybody else. Right. And when you say some, when you say some crazy stuff, I'm going to, um, address that crazy stuff. And if you, and if you show me that you have the ability to have a back and forth conversation, I'll have that conversation with you, you know, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna buy into a bunch of nonsense and I'm not going to sit there and listen to you spew off all your memorized talking points as fast as you can, because you think that makes it right. Right. You know, like, like, like we got to get to a point where we're talking about things like adults and we have to we have to care about each other. Yeah. You know, like I'm not doing anything, you know, and and this is why I I I've been I've been emboldening my friends on the left, you know, who were like tepid about about Biden or about, you know, what's going on with the with the uh with the Democrats right now. And I'm just like, dude, the Democrats care about people. Maybe too much, you know, like maybe the, the whole cancel culture, I, I believe it's gone way too far because, yeah. you know, you almost can't change your mind anymore. Yeah. Like if, if, you, if you said something five years ago on Twitter and then you totally changed your tune and you're doing something good right now, people will still pull you down because they're, they got too much damn time on their hands and, right. they're, and, they're, and, they're, and the purity testing goes too far. Yeah. But that said we at least care right about right, people right and and so so i don't want to hear anybody try to equivocate between the left and the right right now the right is jacked up <laughs> yeah they are completely a mess morally and as and and ethically like their whole thing is all screwed up because they followed trump down the rabbit hole and now the now the rabbit hole like send them out into all these other different territories yeah. via QAnon and all the other latest things, and they're just they're they're and, and at the bottom of it all, there's a bloodthirsty racism yeah. that's driving the whole thing, and so and so I'm just like you know what you guys can go fuck with that if you want, but I'm not. You know, and I'm not going to, and I'm not going to like try to play this game of like, well, both sides are really messed up and all. No, no, 
the Republican Party needs to either reform or or get shut down by the voters. Right, right. Like the 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 extra ten million voters that we had in the last election over them, we need to keep all eighty million of us engaged. So we start removing all these senators and all these Congress people. We need to remove them from office because they're lying, cheating sons of bitches. You know, <laughs> like it's not I it's not you. right. It's not right that we have that we have people sitting in Congress right now who voted to to overturn an election. Right. And there are people in the in the world, your family, my family, you know, uh, everybody's family who are still going to vote for those fools. Like it's a test, people. Don't you understand? We're being tested. Like, do you have godly discernment? Can you see, can you see an evil spirit? You know, it's kind of like that, you yeah. know, and I'm not, I want to get all mumble jumble, but, yeah, yeah. but, but it really boils down to that. Can you see evil in front of you? Right. You know, and they think, they think evil is some woman who, you know, her and her husband are way down the road in their, in their um, pregnancy and something happened that her life is threatened, right. you know, and now we got to make some hard choices. And that's what they call evil, you know, that I want to go into your family and make choices for you that have nothing to do with me, you know, or, or some kid is born gay, you know, or some, some things that are out of our control. And that's what they call evil because they're not using any freaking critical thinking, you know? Right. I mean, it's just, it just boggles my mind and, and I'm old, you know, like I'm, I'm 64 years old. So I, I have the benefit of seeing a lot of stuff at this point, you yeah. know? So I understand that when you're, when you're, you know, 30 years old and you still think God looks like Zeus right. and he's, and he changes the lights for you if you're late for work and you pray hard enough, right. you know, yeah. I, I understand that, but it's stupid. Okay. That's not who God is. God didn't make somebody a certain way so that we would have all this judgment on them and they would feel bad about themselves for their whole life. That's, that's not God. I'm not buying that. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I used to buy it. I, I grew up. I grew up and I experienced the world and I looked at it and I went, you know what? God's not petty. Well, I think that's an interesting point because I think a lot of people might actually grow up and, and but suppress the suppress it because they don't want to admit they were ever wrong. You know what I mean? Or that they were ever, I've seen so much of that. It's not just admitting that you're wrong. It's going against your whole social paradigm that oh, you've yeah. been taught. Exactly. You know, like, like it's scary. Like yeah. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and, and they go, like, well, did you ever have those times where you were like fearful of your own thoughts? And I go, yeah, yeah. I'd be riding along in my car and, and, and having, adult thoughts and go, can I think that, you know? Yeah. And, and, and we really are, you know, as, as Americans, we've been indoctrinated, you know, kind of like the Muslims, you know, yeah. like we're Christians, but it's this oddball Confederate Christianity, yeah. you know, yeah. we're, we're practicing a Christianity that people used to lynch niggers on, on Saturday and then go to church in the morning. Right. Like we're we're I mean, practicing that Christianity and, and exporting ridiculous. it to the world. Yeah. And that's 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 where we are and that's why we've fallen into this Trump rabbit hole. Please stick around, we'll be right back after this short break.
I want to know a little bit about you, your um, upbringing and how, um, you know, what inspired you to pick up the saxophone and what was like kind of your, your moment um, that you wanted to become a musician. I wish it would have been earlier um, when I actually realized this is what I was going to do with my life. But I, I, I grew up in a, you know, Orange County and it was a well-rounded education, you know, where they, yeah. I played cello for a year in fourth grade, which was completely nonsensical because carrying a cello around in the hood was not cool. <laughs> and, and so that lasted a year and I, somehow I got talked into it and I, I really yeah. wanted to play saxophone already. So in seventh grade, I, I started playing saxophone again. And, um, and it was really just because they had good classes, you know, and I, and I, they had the, the whole art, science, art, education, music, physical education, you know, like right. they had the, ba- the, the classical Greek balance of, of, the, of the disciplines. So I, you know, played music, but I never thought I was going to be a musician. I just played it. You know, I started playing in bands pretty early and, you know, really enjoyed it. And, and it was always something that I wanted to do. Like it, it immediately caught me. My, my investigative mind was always intrigued by the possibilities of you know, how do you get better? How do you do this? You know, how much better I'm going to be in 10 years and all that, you know, always made sense to me. But it wasn't until my second year of college that I actually said, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a musician. And that was, you know, just I went, went off to school to be a veterinarian. And really? I just, Interesting. yeah, yeah. And I just ended up taking more and more music classes. I lucked up and, and went to a really good music college. Which, what, which school was that? Fullerton Junior College. We had a really good big band. Terry Blackley was the, uh, was the big band director and he was kind of hip, you know, but we had Dick Powell who wow. was like, okay. who was like, uh, uh, the, the grooviest cat you've ever met. Like, very soft-spoken, very cool jazz guy, played like Bill Evans. Right, right. You, you know, and he and he ran the uh, the combo. And then there was a you know a bunch of us that that ended up there, and you know we just started having a blast. And then I went off to from there. I went to Cal State Long Beach, and I met John Patitucci there. Ah, okay. Was, was hanging out with him in college. You know, like like. We're, we still we still stay in touch, you know. Right, right. It's a weird confluence of things, but I was just I was a terrible student. Once I realized what I wanted to do, I just practiced, yeah, all day and wrote as much as I could, you know. What were you? What was like kind of your guide? Was there was there also was there like a particular player or even a record or even a few that you could mention that really like propelled you and and inspired you? I was pretty much a Eddie Harris, Rasan Roland Kirk, Yusuf Latif, yes. David New, David Fathead Newman, kid, yes. you know, and I had a a large smattering of avant garde Coltrane and Farrell Sanders. Yeah. At the beginning, my technique. I mean, I was pretty modal. Yeah. In my in my formative years, yeah. Like I didn't figure out the bebop thing. I'm still figuring it out. You know, yeah. like I'm 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 still. That's what I work on all day long. You know, yeah. I want to play bebop, but mainly because I know it's going to make me play funk better, you know? Right, right. right. So then I, I, I was, you know, out of college, I got a pop gig, played, played in an R&B band and worked for um, the manager of the band was Don Cornelius. Oh, wow. Soul Train. Wow. Yeah. 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 Legend. So, 
yeah so i was on i was on soul train a few times i ran into uh i ran into quest love once yeah and uh it, i think it was minneapolis airport and i walked over to him and i knew him i only knew him from um from the brooklyn bowl you yeah. know from him djing and i i walked over to him and said what's up and and he was like hey man i didn't know you were on soul train and yeah because you know he's a big soul train oh, he's, yeah he's he knows every episode pretty much yeah 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 so he had seen me on soul train wow and and and, and was cracking up at it did that from that time and then um that lasted a few years yeah you know and and so i've lasted till about 86 i think yeah or 85 and then yeah i went back to you know doing stupid day gigs security guard delivering flowers whatever you know trying to trying to gig in orange county yeah and i ended up um lucky into a gig where i ended up becoming the leader of the gig and it was like two nights at this couple of jazz um joints so that the one owner owned right and the guy and the guy wanted he wanted bebop you know he wanted jazz yeah so i i had that i started doing that and i did that for a few years sometimes i'd work five nights six nights a week playing jazz yeah and so that was awesome and then i i met lenny kravitz at the end of that period like 88 89 how did that meeting take place what was the the, the band o'brien that i played with um with o, uh, that i worked for don cornelius yeah the trumpet player michael hunter knew lenny kravitz from la he, he called me and we went to a session and it was a lenny kravitz pr producing this other singer and we did some horns and then like a year later Lenny was in New York, married to Lisa Bonet, and he called us. You know, he came out to New York and started working on Let Love Rule. company really liked my solo on that track and so lenny called me three four months later and and said come back to new york let's finish the record and i was the first guy in the band there and then through traveling with lenny in 91 i met stefan minor uh, who owned minor music right. in uh, a record label in germany out of cologne got it got and it. and i started making jazz records yeah and I made uh, I made four four jazz records with him, including the one with Jack DeJohnette and Dave Holland. Right. Where I just where I just got my ass whooped royally. And then at the end of that, I was working with Fred Wesley also. Yeah. What was the connection? How did you connect with Fred? Fred was on minor music. Oh, I see. I didn't realize that. Okay. But the record Com Si Com Sa. Okay. Fred yeah. Wesley. Yeah. Stefan Minor got me on that session with Fred. Ah. Uh. And. And I and that's how I met Fred, and then I ended up in the band. Right, right. And I had actually I had actually met Fred back in like maybe maybe eighty eight. Right. You know, eighty seven, eighty eight. I got a call from a friend that that there was an open audition for 
to be in a Coke commercial. A bunch of musicians, they wanted all musicians and they, they, and they, they paired us up. And yeah. I got paired up with Fred Wesley. Oh, wow. Crazy. And, and so he, we just made up a little riff and, 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 you know, played the riff for the, for the guys and didn't get the gig, but right. that's how I actually met him. And so when, when I, wow, that's a crazy story. Yeah, it was wow. cool. It was cool. Were you a little bit geeked out that it was Fred Wesley? Of course. <laughs> when you walked up? Of course. Of course. I, uh, dude, I, I, I remember the moment I heard the big payback. Oh my God. You, know I mean? you got to hold back with all your might not to go, Fred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Fred. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming this is around that same era. And this is the, the, the question, which was on my top of my list of questions that I, you know, I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Sexual chocolate. How did it, oh, yeah. how did it happen? For those of you that don't know, coming to America, the sexual chocolate scene, Carl is featured in the band. And I've always wanted to know how that culminated. You know what? I got to actually, speaking of that, I got to watch the new one. The new one's out. Back to O'Brien, yeah. you know, the, 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 the Soul Train years. Yeah. Um, the bass player in that band, Melvin Davis, you might know him. He plays okay. with Shaka now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Bruce Sterling, the keyboard player, one of the last keyboard players with O'Brien. We started a band together. And do you know Tori Ruffin? He plays with the time. So we all had the, the O'Brien connection. And then we ended up starting a band called Cush in, um, in LA. Right. And, and so in 88, 87, Jeff Suttles, the drummer, got the gig working, with, working as a gopher for uh, John Landis on the Paramount plot. Oh, okay, okay. And he found out we had a band, and I, I guess the scene was already there, and they needed a band, so we became Sexual Chocolate. And what was shooting that like? I mean, with with Eddie and the whole, was there rehearsals, or was it kind of like just go? Well, the cool part of that one was, um, that's cooler than this one that we just did, was we were hired by uh, by SAG that right, time. Right. So we, we ended up going in the studio and making the recording, you know, that's me playing on the record right. on the on the on the movie. This time they they we got hired as musicians. So I actually didn't realize. So you guys are in it again. This new one. Yeah, yeah, we're in the new one. <laughs> yes, I can't <laughs> wait to see that. I know, I know, it's, it's super funny. Um, so we went in the studio and recorded the song. Then we had like a, I think it was a day or a, a two days of of uh, of filming. Right. And it was just a lot of standing around. Yeah. You know, all those girls in bikinis. You yeah, know. Yeah you know, Arsenio Hall and, and, and Eddie, he never broke character. It's funny when I, when we did the new movie, I saw him, he comes on stage and he's back. He's Randy Watson again. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's very quiet and he's like Randy Watson. And, and I, I, I looked at him, I go, I go, man, I go, the only two times I've ever met you, you've, you've been this guy. I, I never <laughs> get to see you as yourself. And, and he was like, he looked at me and he hadn't said a word to me. And he yeah. looked at me and go, what's the, what was the other time I met you? And I go, yeah. I go, when we did the sex, when we did this the first time, and he was yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, at the time when we did it in 88, man, he was so big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and we're all black people. And, and it's like, you know, everybody and their brother wants to meet and hang out with Eddie Murphy. So there was definitely a wall that you yeah. really didn't, you didn't try to cross over right, because it right. was, it was, uh, it was just like, you know, Everybody on the set was in awe. 
of of just being there and seeing Eddie Murphy at work. While you're in the clapping mood, I'd like to give a big round of applause to my band, Sexual Chocolate. Sexual Chocolate. They play so fine, don't you agree? I believe the children are our future. Thank you. Teach them well, hands. Back to Lenny. You're with Lenny from 91. And when did that, when did that kind of gig fizzle for you? Or when did that? So I was, I was with Lenny from 89. Oh, 89. Okay. 89. We started, um, 89. We finished the record. The record dropped the summer of 89, the the fall of 89. Was he, was he pretty big before that record dropped? I mean, that was his big one. No, he he was, he was really kind of, um, just a struggling dude who, had made a couple of things, but nothing had ever, had ever happened. Right. You know, like he had a, he had a, he had called himself Romeo blue before that. And it was kind of making more, the stuff was more like, like Prince. Right. Right. And then when I met him, he was doing this, this record. There was this guy named Tony Lamont that he was producing. And Tony Lamont was like a God rest his soul. He died tragically in a car accident. And he was just one of those wild characters, but he was like freaking sly stone dude. Really? It was so much soul. The songs wow. were so good. It was incredible. It was it was one of those things that happened at the wrong time. Yeah. Because he was he wasn't using the he wasn't using any of the prints sounds you know and uh, yeah. sounds and yeah. the, the box. The it program, was like it was yeah. like like they were using live musicians. Right. Which was like black people weren't doing that at that time. Right. So it was right. like really revolutionary. Good lord, if it's so the music was so good. So then we, you know, when we did Let Love Rule, uh, it came out in in fall of '89, and we were doing like a small, um, you know, promotional tour. We we're, yeah. we're touring like you know belly, like like not even belly, like Winston size right, right, rooms, right. you know, clubs, yeah. And and but but it immediately got street cred right you know and so and so within within a few months within six months you know we're playing belly up size places everywhere and and you know it it was just growing and growing you know so then we toured that record and then we toured the mama said record right and then by 93 when when he put out um are you gonna go my way yeah the, the record with that on it um that's when he that that's when when it went arena or went you know yeah 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 that's when yeah yeah by 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 the end of Obama said because he had um it ain't over till it's over yeah that that was the hit yeah which is still one of my I love that track I love that whole record I love I love all those records but that that Mama said uh Mama said is is my yeah yeah and and so um so the ninety three um we're touring um are you gonna go my way you know, now my, you know, I put my first record out in 92 on minor music. Yeah. And so, and we're overall, we're all over in Europe a lot. So I'm starting to get my own touring starting to happen. Right. By the summer of 93, I'm starting to like make plans for the fall to actually do my own thing. Yeah. And Lenny, you know, he didn't really want me to go to do my thing, but you yeah. know, it was just time. It yeah. was time. And then I, I ended up getting Harold Todd on the gig. Yeah. Who's a great saxophone player. You know, he's on, he's on freestyling. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's him playing all that amazing flute on uh, West coast Boogaloo. Right. Right. And that, yeah, I discovered that I discovered him through West coast Boogaloo. 
Yeah. 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 I, I took, I took a lot of credit for his playing for right, a lot right. of years, but, <laughs> but that was, Harold Todd was a badass. Yeah, and it yeah. was, so the funny thing was when I left Lenny's band, I was like, I was like, man, I got this guy, you know, he, he's kind of my size. looks yeah. kind of like me, you know, he can wear my clothes and, 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 <laughs> and, and actually you, you might like him better than me, right, you know? Right. And, and so I, I got Harold on the gig and, uh, and I was only supposed to be gone for a few months. But Harold basically took my gig, right, right, because he's such a he's such a beast. He really is a beast. So I was out with Fred at the time when I found out I didn't have a gig anymore. Yeah. So I came home. Luckily, it was just the confluence of time. I got I I left Lenny in, in October of ninety three, and the Great Boy All Stars played their first gig December of ninety three. Right. So I came home and immediately locked in with with dj gray boy and then he put the band together for his record release party which harold had played on right and i kind of replaced harold <laughs> so on it that. was just a swap and, out it was a yeah full swap we, swapped, out. We, we, we swapped it out did you know did you know gray boy for a while before that or was did he kind of seek yeah. you out i met gray boy in 92 and we had recorded um unwind your mind right you know that track on, yes, uh, yes. on on ubiquity on ubiquity right right and that was yeah. that, that one was on their compilation is that right yes, yes yeah the home cooking compilation like that's where i your discovered you discovered great right. boy and i don't know if you even knew this but i was like at some of those gigs i can't because of the coombs brothers i used to those were that i met them in 92 at the summer program at berkeley and then we became like best friends and i would go visit them during like school breaks um, right, and I would come to some of those, some of those parties and stuff, and see that band. Right, like in Newport Beach. Newport Beach, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little nasty club down there that we used to play. So '92, I mean, it was the crazy part of that was that was a really fun little period. Yeah, in a way, because I was traveling Europe a lot. I was playing with Lenny Kravitz. I was doing my own, making my own records, and when I would go to the to the dance clubs. Every so often, I would hear freaking Unwind Your Mind in right, Europe, right? In the clubs, I was like, eh, Look at that, yeah. I'm in a club, you know. So, yeah, so then the Grey Boy All-Stars happened in 93, and then, you know, the rest is history. By 98, I started Tiny Universe when the Grey Boy All-Stars took a break, and that's what I've been doing since then. And West Coast Boogaloo was, like, a big record in my world, you know, I because I, there wasn't anything – there wasn't really much, like, groove, like, soul, jazz – funk between like the Lonnie Smith Grant Green era to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there yeah. was um a few things here and there, but they were all produced so horribly. <laughs> you know, and you yes. guys and not and then the fact that you guys brought Fred on was huge for us like super funk heads. You know, right. so, so it right. drew a lot we, of us in. And know? then the first and then our first guest that we brought when we came to New York was um was uh Melvin Sparks. Melvin Sparks, yes. We got we got Melvin Sparks and Leon Spencer yep. like to come yep. out and play with us. So so we 
that band was very uh, I'm very proud of what we did, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of 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 what we brought to the to the world because I was over in Europe 1991 90, and and uh the acid jazz thing happened in Europe before here. Right, of course. But it was basically they just started sampling those records. Right. Those Lonnie Smith and and the Grant Green records and and I was always a a boogaloo guy as a kid because I understood what that was and I understood I've always been kind of a historian in that way of like trying to connect the the funk to the soul to the jazz you know right right and, and so I always understood the word boogaloo to really mean something profound in terms of what like Lee Morgan and Dizzy Gillespie Right, you know, brought to the world that straightened out beat. And um, so when I met Gray Boy, you know, he used the term boogaloo, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, and so so that's how we started working together, right. and so it was just like that. And then, and then to have a bunch of guys, you know, with the Gray Boy All Stars who also got it, yeah. You know, like we were doing that music. That was our yeah. specific goal was to create that music. And um, uh, and I always tell I always tell people this. It's it's a little arrogant, but but I just knew how good we were at yeah. what we were doing. Yeah. And I was always amazed that people didn't bite what we were doing more. Right. Right. You know, because there was all those bands, you know, Groove Collective and yeah. all those other different kinds of bands. And they were all kind of more brand new heavies. We wanted to be a jazz band. Right, right. You guys had a different touch. And you guys also weren't relying on any production. You guys were a, a live band. We were, we were trying to play live music that was dance music, you know? I mean, it was kind of a whole era when those Wetlands days, when the Masters of Groove guys, because Soul Live, I guess I'm fast forwarding a little because that's when Soul Live started playing. Ruben Wilson was hanging around and Melvin Sparks and Idris was still alive. And there was yes. a bunch of these co-minglings with these different bands. And it was so cool to see because the Great Boy, I mean, you guys went out for a while before Soul Live existed. But when we started, people were starting to like, you know, open up to that music in this whole new world who had never experienced oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. the authentic, not even authentic, I should say, the original guys. I was so irritated with Alan Evans, with his <laughs> smart ass, when, when, when you guys happened, because, you know, he just yeah. left my band. I know, I know, I know. Right? We went to New York. I met Neil, and within, like, a week, you know, they were kind of pl plotting. plotting. planning. I think I may have come to that gig I know there was a gig at the Wetlands where I was there, Neil was there, and yes. I was playing with you. And we went and hung out afterwards. Yes. Actually, then, um, it's possible that Lettuce opened that show. We definitely opened for you at the Wetlands. I don't think I don't think that I don't think that was the Wetlands. Okay. I think that was um I think where I met Neil was um was at Irving Plaza. Oh, okay. That could be there? it. That could be it. No, because I right. remember Lettuce opening for you at the wetlands and actually previous to that i wanted to see if you could remember this and if i'm remembering it correctly but i met you uh -huh. at the iron horse i was in college in northampton mass the iron horse right and you and i started talking and 
I don't know why the hell you listened to like some random kid, but I think I gave you the lettuce tape. We exchanged yes. numbers and you called me and you were like, yes. you were like, Hey man, I really dig it. You guys should stretch out more. And I remember like our, but every other person had been like, man, you need to cut these down a little. <laughs> and you were like, <laughs> and Carl calls me. He's like, hey, man, why aren't you guys stretching out? You guys are grooving this. And uh, I remember being like, oh, I'm listening to Carl. I don't know. <laughs> but that, Bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> but then fast forward, you came to do an East Coast tour with KDTU. I think this was pre-Allen. And you called yeah. me about a keyboard player. And my roommate was Jeff Basker, who yes. many people may know as like the biggest pop producer of the last 20 years, you know? Right. But he, right. Uh, he, he was your keyboard player for that tour. And he, I went with you guys. And like, you know, crashed wherever I crashed, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. We went and, up to Burlington. Yeah, Burlington and, and yeah. did a few shows and I was kind of just hanging. Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. Those those were really, uh, really fun times. But yeah, those those early days. And obviously, you know, we were all so live and lettuce. You know, you, we were so inspired by what you guys were doing. And the first time I heard, what's the song that goes, boom, 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 Stepping, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Stephen. Yeah. We heard that track on the on the on the um, system, and we were like, "Damn, that's funk," yeah. you know. And we were trying to figure out who it was, and we we're like, "I was like, man, it sounds old, but I don't think it's old." The only thing I can think of is Ron Levy, but it was so funky. I was like, "I don't think that's Ron." Yeah. And then we finally went and scouted it out, and it was so live. And I was like, "That motherfucker." <laughs> <laughs> Alan Evans, you know, just yeah, yeah. just left my band, and yeah, like yeah. three, four months later, I hear that. I was just like, "Ain't that a bitch?" <laughs> that, yeah, that, man, a little genius motherfucker. Yeah, he was yeah. always Alan's so freaking smart, you know. Like, yeah, like, yeah, he, is. he was always the guy that could fix things. Man, you know? touring with <laughs> Alan Evans was the greatest, <laughs> like educational experience of my life. Cause also, I don't know if you, you know, but you know, Neil and Al have been touring the country since they were kids, you know, yes. Neil's been on the road since he was like 12, 13. That's why he's like a 80 year old man now. <laughs> when he's, you know, when he talks about touring Alan, when we first started touring and this is pre uh, maps, you know, pre cell phone, but Al knew not only where every club was, he knew the load in, he knew the name of the like lo guy, he knew the like where the barbecue was around the corner and every <laughs> town we'd go into, you know, he just knew everything, man. It was like I, I felt hilarious. so fortunate because it was my first time on the road. I didn't know shit. You and know? you weren't and, getting lost and just ended nah. up spending hours in the nowhere. If it weren't for Al, Al was like our iPhone. You know, he like <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. He he knew and everything. And he can fix things. He yeah, could actually yeah. like he oh, could yeah. actually fix the he can fix the car. He can fix the freaking amps. Oh, he the amount fix of times that he fixed the amps and the organ, you know, and figured out Jimmy Riggs. I we, one time one time we were in actually this is we were in West Africa and he and the kick drum broke and there ain't no store to get a kick drum head and he somehow rigged a pair of jeans. 
<laughs> to work. I don't know what kind of sewing and scissors and how he did it, but all of a sudden he's like, "Wait, I got it!" And then because we were like, "Oh man, we just get out. How are we gonna play this gig?" And actually, and it was killing. We came back in the room. And he's like, "Go go 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 cat." He's like, "Yo, these jeans are killing." <laughs> we'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. Doing the the Soul Live Carl out little EP, which I still think we need to do volume two or whatever we're going to do. I agree. Um, was such a fun experience for us. Um, and, uh, you know, for the people that don't know, it's called Spark. And Mel, we just, we had planned on, okay, we're going to do some shows together, but that we might as well book some studio time. And Pierre, were you in the Stones at that point or no? No. Oh, this is pre. Oh, wow. So that makes the story even cooler. Is exactly. That, is that Pierre. When I rolled up on the Stones and saw yeah, Pierre, right. it was awesome. So Pierre, yeah. it was, is a, a, an amazing engineer and he's Keith Richards, guitar tech, amp tech. He's another mastermind. From, from forever. From forever. And Alan got to know him because he has was building a studio. He built a studio in Greenfield, Mass, just down the road from Alan. And it's an old library that, that he basically converted, but he didn't even do that much. He just kind of cleared it out. Put he just all, moved enough to get the studio in. Yeah, and it sounds absolutely amazing in that room. Like when you listen to that recording... There's really, we didn't do much. I mean, he had great microphones and right. we, we were just live in a room, wrote the songs. I mean, there's a couple covers on there. We did a Yousef tune and, right. uh, and, but we wrote the songs kind of on the spot and just kind of cut it like an old school. See, we, I remember I was like, listening to a lot of CTI albums at yeah. the time. So when we came in, we were like, yo, let's do something on like, you know, that Freddie Hubbard. We did a Freddie Hubbard tune. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. And, yeah those uh, are the only covers. Yeah. Yousef and Freddie and, and Yousef, who was my teacher um, in college, which, and he at the time, I can't remember if he had passed already, but he had, he was living in that area. He hadn't. Cause I remember I was going to reach no, yeah. out to him about right. maybe playing on it, which obviously did not happen. Um, but that was such a cool experience. And then we got to go to Japan together mm -hmm. uh, as a quartet. Playing with you guys, man, that was that was so much fun because, for one thing, the the whole like what you guys do is so specific and cool. Like, I mean, there's a there's a definite cool factor in Soul Live. Like the the whole idea that that sound that you guys put together is really incredible. And then getting to watch Neil every night, man, and Tell not and <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize like how 
uh, innov- completely innovative. Mm. What he does is, yeah. you know, and 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 then you know, getting to getting to see him um, go blank, yeah. you know, the blank the blank stare, and then see what's what's coming out of the organ. It was it was really an eye opener. I was like, man, this is some really fresh stuff. Like you guys, you guys hit it hit it out of the park with that band. In I general. mean, Neil, watching Neil every night, and it's crazy because you would think that after doing it for twenty years now, that uh-huh. I would be less amazed, but I'm not. It's it's just because every single time it blows me away. The fact yeah, that he the- can not only be such a great i mean it's really there's two people or three if you really want to break it down yeah yeah yeah. because he's soloing without any restraint and the bass player it's like jamie james jamerson and jocko and rocco and all my favorite guys and the way he manipulated the tone of the organ to get that sound it's unreal and you're right when he kind of zones out you would think that you need every ounce of concentration um, in your brain and body to do all of those things at once, but then he will right. just completely zone out to like where it's just flowing out. Um, yes, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Well, what I gotta say about Soul Live and and Carl, I, I'm assuming I'm saying this in the third person, is we've played with a lot of saxophone players, and I love them all. But it you the what you brought to us made us a different band essentially, which was so cool because of your dynamic ability. Cause that we have guys that like when we're blazing up here can hang and, 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 and play really hard, but right. it's there was, and we've also, you know, we've played with Josh Redman where like we have to stay down here. You know what I mean? Right, um, right, but right. you flowed to every dynamic and you just got excited by it. A lot of the other saxophone players like, Love Josh Redman, but when we'd get super loud, he'd be like, oh, man. He'd just like be like, nah, I can't. I, that, that blaring organ, I just, you know. And then other right. cats, when we get too soft, they're like, oh, you know, they just want to play that rhythmic shit. But there was something about that combination of of even, you know, just from a, from a, even a listener. I mean, I know I was playing, but just like listening to you play with soul live was a really awesome experience because you knew where we were going to go and could f- f- not only follow us there, but lead us, you know, into oh, really man, interesting nice. places. That's nice. I'm th- thanks for that. I, I, I really, I, that's, that's another one of those great boy all-stars things, you know, and I, and I always, you know, I've always considered myself a jazz musician so you know it's all about dynamics right and then and then when you play with the great boy all-stars for years they're they're super dynamic like they're they want to leave you hanging every once in a while to make the dynamics happen it's always fun for me i I love to go back to the us being a part of this jam band scene yeah i think that's one of those things where which is what makes the jam band scene right you know is that you really have a lot of bands you know between our aesthetics you know the, the the soul jazz thing to the jazz thing to the um to the grateful dead thing and to the bluegrass thing i think the 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 one of the defining characters of all that music is dynamics right right you know because it's really live music that somebody's playing every night and they're touring and they're you know, they got to make a life for themselves doing it. So they got to have some ups and downs. Right. And so, you know, in, inside that, I think that's why the audience appreciates it. And, and I've always loved that when there's a moment where 
nothing happened and the audience loved it even more than when something happened, you know, when the music just, when the music just dropped down and, 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 and you're waiting for it. And the audience is like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm, yeah. re- I'm ready. You I'm know? with it. I'm with it. Yeah. The yeah. fact that yeah. they want to ride that wave and, you know, they, they want to be a part of something that is unique to that moment, you know, because we're not going to do the same show tomorrow night. And we definitely didn't do it this way last night, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I really appreciate that. I think in the beginnings, and I'm curious if you had this feeling, when Soul Live came out, I was the only one that was even aware of jam bands, really. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. They were aware, but, you know, Neil and it was really more Neil was like, I don't, he hated the word jam, the word jam band. Oh my God. If that came up in an interview, the rest of the interview, he was like, this just uh, like um which you know i had i we wanted obviously to be more i don't know what we what we wanted to because to be totally honest what audience is better than the jam band audience i mean they're first of all we're playing thousand seat venues instead of like little jazz clubs you know what i mean so it's like um i was just thankful to be part of it but i never got that like yeah like um disdain yeah, for yeah. the jam band community because I always considered them to me like as a jazz musician, you know, who was not gonna play smooth jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, for for any for any amount of money. Right. And so for me, like the most the realest kind of music that I could play was what was being played in the jam band scene. And and even though, you know, I wasn't gonna play the same kind of music as string cheese or as leftover salmon or as you know any nonsense that i that i heard along the way i still appreciated the audience always right right. and their and their their interest in the experiment you know where when gray boy all-stars started to like take off was that were you guys surprised by this did the like what was the reaction um, by the band to be embraced by by the jam band world it was probably half and half right we probably had half me and you and then half neil and uh mike you know and elgin yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were like oh, i don't know how what? i do that yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know yeah. they're, they're kind of like what what the heck's going on and yeah. you know it was it was interesting because then you got robert who is Robert's like super style counsel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Robert embraced the jam band community right away because he was finally playing music that he was happy playing. Oh yeah. You know, like he loved when he when he realized like, you know, what the jam band scene was about and yeah. what what the what the music we were playing, you know, that that all those organ players, Lonnie Smith and and that they were all accepted in that community. Yeah. He was just like, this is fun. Oh yeah. And then he kind of became like the Dean Martin of Jam Cruise with the (laughs) with the jacket and like whiskey on the rocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, just like say, man, you know, I love he 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 would say he would tell you, man. Yeah. I like I like drinking and playing funk. Yeah, yeah. And I love him for it. I love yeah, him for it. He's been consistent, yeah. man. I love that guy. So tell me a little bit about uh, how the Rolling Stones gig came to fruition. That was just a complete gift from God out of the blue. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, 
I guess it was 2014. You know, I went through a, I went through a period of like, you know, me and Eric had separated back in like 2005, I think 2004 or five. And, um, my manager and, um, and, and I went, I had like, you know, a big management company out of Nashville that didn't turn into anything because they wanted me to make a pop record. And I, I don't know how to make pop records. I'm, I'm who I am. And, and so that eventually fizzled out. And then I did the KD three thing for a while, my trio, which was super fun. And then at the end of that, I, I reconnected with Eric. And so that was probably, you know, 2008 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it was actually, it was actually 2008, nine. Right. Cause I went back out with Lenny in 2008. Oh, okay. Right. He right. saved my life. We, 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 me and my family, we went to see his show, um, the end of 2007, the uh, Christmas show in, in San Diego. Yep. And, and he, and he goes, he goes, when, when are you going to come back out with me? And, and I was like, I don't know, I don't, you know, and, and right then I wasn't, things weren't going that well. So he, he goes, call me in, in January. Let's, let's see if, if somebody, we can work something out. That January, he hired me. I went out with Lenny for that whole year, basically. And he paid me really well. And then it was done. I got back with Eric in 2009. And we started putting the Tiny Universe back in order. We, we got it back up and running. But it wasn't, you know, we had already had our heyday, kind of. Yeah. You know, we're slugging it out at that point. You know, and just you know, make a record, try to you know, see what you can do. And by 2014, I was really at a point where I was like, I'm not going to make a million dollars. I'm making a living. I'm eking, I'm eking it out, and I'm pretty happy. Right. You know, I'm a little tired because I'm. By that time, I was doing my band, the Gray Boy All Stars, were starting to tour again, and I was doing. Um, Phil Lesh, you know, yep. and hired me yep. to do some things. I was yeah, doing, I think we crossed, we crossed into that band at the same on, on some gigs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and I was had been doing the slightly stupid thing for oh, a while. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing a lot of traveling, and um, and then I, I was at the point where okay, this is sustainable. I can I can make this work, and so I'm I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'm just gonna chill and enjoy the ride you know it's fan to, to feed my kids and yeah. get them into college and then out of the blue man i get a call from a from a restricted number while well, i was actually buying my first guitar at guitar center oh, okay i came out i came out and my phone was in the car and i came out and there's a restricted call and i don't usually answer them anyway yeah, yeah. i head back home and uh Dela, the sax player from from slightly stupid we we're working on his record yeah so we're at my house, we're working on the record, and I get this restricted call again. And I'm like, maybe I should answer this. And so I answer it, and it's Lenny Kravitz. You know, I'm like, what's up, Lenny? And he's like, oh, man, I, I got somebody to, somebody wants, needs a sax player. And I, and I was like, to go on the road. And I was like, you know what, man, I, I got enough work. I'm kind of like chilling on the road thing right now. <laughs> and, and he goes, he goes, you might want to, you might want to check this one out. And, and, yeah. and, he, and he goes, it's the Rolling Stones. And I looked at Dela and I go, Lenny Kravitz, are you offering me the Rolling Stones gig right now? Wow. He, he goes, yeah, kind of, he goes, we need to audition. But, and, and I was just like, Whoa. And then, you know, he sent them a few tracks, right. You know, like the mama said, um, 
you know, what comes around goes around solo yeah. and, uh, yeah. and let love rule. And, and then, and then I sent them a few things. I sent yeah. them, uh, you know, like me playing, can't you hear me knocking? Cause we've right. done that stones tribute the year before, a couple of years right. before. And then I sent them uh, me playing with Warren Haynes and yeah. I was kind of stretching out and a couple of things, you know, and I sent it to him. And then like a week later, you know, he, he calls me and says, they like you. And, uh, Mick's going to be calling you, you know, and then I was, I was in the studio working on Dale's record when Mick called and I had a Skype chat with him. Then I thought for sure, I'm going to die before I get to Australia. <laughs> you know, there's no freaking way yeah. I'm going to Australia and playing with the Rolling Stones. Right. Right. But I made it and, and here I am. And Mick is pretty much the manager, right? I mean, I know they have a team, but is he's kind of the the one making... no i mean they've got a real manager they do okay as well yeah yeah they they got real management um yeah. nick is just the uh he's kind of the mover and shaker like i think he's he's the most um you know aware of the business doing the business all the time guy yeah. in the band yeah but you know they're the they're the rolling stones right right well i know you know soul live opened for the stones a couple summers yeah. the story is that charlie watts was a fan of the first album but then Mick came to our gig in Toronto, unbeknownst to us, actually. But right. supposedly he called someone in our team, I think our agent or some, I, I don't remember exactly the chain of, of how it all happened, but essentially he saw us, made the call, and within like a couple months we were opening for them. Yeah, which was that like, makes sense. So yeah. he's a busy guy, man. I bet. The guy... It's a lot of work done every day. It's it's pretty amazing. And what were rehearsals like? Was there was the whole band there? Was there was there a lot of rehearsals? Oh yeah, time? yeah, yeah. They, they 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 put in at least three weeks, more like a month of rehearsal. Right. And they usually bring the horns in for the last two weeks. It's the best thing ever, as Lisa Fisher used to call it. They try on their catalog. Right. Right. So they, they, they'll practice and, um, you know, we, we practice from, uh, three to eight every day, except for Sunday. And they go in there and they, they practice for out of those five hours, Mick's probably singing four of them. Wow. You know, maybe, maybe three forty-five. Yeah. but he's singing like they're working. And so they'll make a list. They probably have you know, thousands of, of whiteboards with, uh, with, with color Sharpie. Right. Where, where Ronnie, cause he's the artist in the band, they, they pick songs and then Ronnie makes a set list really beautifully. Yeah. So each set list maybe has like seven songs on it and then they play those seven songs and then he, then they, they take a little break and then they make another one and they do that all day long. And those songs that they play, they go deep into their catalog. Right. Like you get, you get to hear all those random songs you never hear. Yeah. Yeah. And then unfortunately they don't play enough of those on the road. Yeah. But rehearsal, they try all that stuff on. So you get to hear these, these crazy songs, you know, where you're like, wow. Oh, why don't we play that one? You know? Yeah. Oh, why don't we play that? One? Oh, I just want to dance to this one. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And who makes the set list? Who actually is, is it Mick or is it kind of a collective? It's kind of a collective, like, yeah, like, yeah. like they'll, 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 they'll kind of huddle in, Yeah. you know, during the break, they'll huddle in and then they'll, they'll, they'll say, Oh, let's play this. Let's play that. Let's yeah, yeah. write it down. And then Ronnie will make the real set list. And then the, the, then the crew takes that list 
you know, um, prints it out and gives it to everybody. And then we rehearse those songs. Wow. But it's such a, you know, the catalog is just so massive. Yeah. It's insane. And so great that, you know, you're just sitting there all day long, just playing these great Rolling Stones songs. And were you hip to the Stones growing? I mean, everybody, I feel like it's the soundtrack of like everyone's childhood, but were you like a Stones fan ever like growing up? Luckily I discovered uh, Bobby Keys, but when I was probably like 1920 and I was starting to play some club gigs, I would have these drunks would always come up to me and go, Hey man, Play some Bobby Keys. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and so after, you know, after five of them, you go, okay, I got to I gotta figure out who Bobby Keys is. Right. And then realizing it was a Stones guy, yeah. I became more aware. He kind of taught me how to play slow. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I was like a real jazz guy. You know, I, all you want to do is play fast and furious. And, you know, realizing how much respect Bobby Keys had from regular people. Yeah. I, I, I kind of took that to heart and started studying him a bit. It was a uh, it was a good fit. Yeah. When I got there, I felt like I was in the right place. Right. Because I really I really felt like I knew Bobby Keys. Yeah. Yeah. And Man. and I and I knew and I knew the Stones from from him, but I didn't. I mean. To go deep into that catalog, man, they make records. They make a lot of records. And was there a lot of, did they add a lot of horns or did you guys add a lot of horns for on the songs that don't have horns? Every so often, Mick will actually, you know, want to add some horns. But most of the yeah. time, he likes to keep the horns to about, we play about 20, 30% of the show. That's a nice gig. It's Amazing. my vacation. I go out and I ride in a private jet. Yeah. And stay at five five star hotels. You know, the only thing I have to worry about is losing my chops. Right. I'm not playing enough, so I have to practice a lot. Right. And, and then a lot of times, like during rehearsal, during the shows, I'm backstage playing along with the Rolling Stones. Right. You right. know, when you're when you're here and start me up out front, I'm back there playing to start me up. Right. You right. know, just to keep my chops up, and and then me and Tim the other sax player, we become really good friends yeah, and, yeah. and we're back there. We're like, uh, I gotta, I gotta learn their names, but we're the, we're the two old men in Muppets, you know, we're sitting in the back in our, in yeah. our little box, in our little box, you know, yeah. having a blast. Right. Right. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I know Tim a little bit through uh, our mutual buddy, Shelly Berg, the piano player who's like, Oh yeah. 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 One of my dad's best friends, but Tim's awesome. He's an incredible player too. Um, is there talk of of another tour? Is there any? I mean, obviously, we, no one knows when anything is happening. We can't but, do anything until yeah. we get this freaking pandemic under control. Yeah. And I am so irritated that, the, to go back to our beginning conversation about all these knuckleheads in the Trump cult. The fact that we're a year into this thing and have done this badly at it and yeah. that people are still cool with this, that's the infuriating part. I want to go back to work. Yeah. And if you keep lying to yourself and believing that everything was done well, we're not going to get here. And I want to go back to work. I'm going to come to my breaking point soon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's been nice, but now it's time to go back to work. And and the first thing we got to go, we got to deal with is let's get some objective truth so we can get an objective truth on this vaccine, get it in everybody's arms, you know, get some herd immunity and, uh, and, and start filling up 60,000 seaters again. Well, man, it's such a 
pleasure to have you on the show and for you to take the time and talk to me. Um, I appreciate you so much too, man. It's just like as a mentor and having been able to play with you and hang with you over the years. So I feel you, man. It's, yeah. it's, it's good. To, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're doing well. Congratulations yeah, on the baby. Thank you, man. All right, man. All right, I brother. will talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. All right, man. Later. I want to thank Carl Denson for being on the show. So great to catch up with him. And before we go, I'm going to play one of my favorite Greyboy All-Star tracks. This one's off the album West Coast Boogaloo and features the great Fred Wesley on trombone. It's called Soul Dream.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kraz. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.